The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Songhez Omapete on SAFM. Tuesday takeover, Dr. Giora Pete Tabane is a medical oncologist at Santon Oncology and an Icon Oncology Network oncologist. After 12 years of study, this culminating in May 2008, she became South Africa's first black, and would you imagine first black female, medical oncologist. Born in Hebron, north of Pretoria, and matriculated at Soho High School in Macau. In 1999, she completed her medicine and Bachelor of Surgery, MBCHB, always trying to be clever, these doctors, at Sefakomakato Health Sciences University, once known as Medunsa. Well, there's more to say about her. There's more to say to her, so she can talk to us more about herself. Dr. Kiyo Tabane, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to The Viewpoint. Um, good evening, Songezo, and thank you for having me. Excellent. I didn't read all of your profile, and that's because I wouldn't really want to be your mouthpiece when you can almost invariably <laughs> represent yourself much better than I could. Who is Dr. Kiyo Tabane? Before we start talking about the Tabanes, you and I offline had a conversation <laughs> about the titles that the Tabanes are chasing. Let's talk about Kiyo Tabane, the girl, the sister, the mother, the child, the aunt, the neighbor, so that we can better understand the professional behind the person, yeah? Okay, so and as you as you point out, um, I'm a mom, uh, a wife, a sister, a friend, and um, like most women, um, and I also happen to be a medical oncologist. Um, so that is what I do, that is what I enjoy, but that is, of course, not the entirety of who I am. Let's get more of that non-entirety of who you are. So, um, you know, I mean, of course, um, uh, the, for the most part, I'm, I'm, I'm working as a medical oncologist at Centre Oncology. I have been there for the last 12 years. Um, and when I'm not doing that or, or alongside that, even I, I'm a mom to two children, aged eight and four, um, a boy and a girl. Um, and as you probably already know, I've got uh, two brothers and uh, who are older. So I'm the youngest in our family. Uh, I, I had hoped that I could escape uh, what I know you're going to ask me, but yes, um, I've got two brothers. I grew up in Hebron in the Northwest, and I am in Motswana, um, and went to Medunz, uh, studied there, then went to uh, Potritas Res, um, now Mokopani, to do my um, ComSev, and then came back to Joburg to do internal medicine. So I am a specialist physician um, who subspecialized in medical oncology, and um, yeah, and that's and that's in in a nutshell um, what I'm about. Um, I also, um, apart from that, run and and have co-founded the foundation called the Happy Me Foundation, which is really about um, empowering young girls in their health journeys um, and just saying to them, "I see you, um, I acknowledge you, and I and I believe in you." So that's also what I do um, um, in my copious <laughs> spare time. Um, you know, just to try and, 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 and engage uh, young girls in our communities. We'll talk about Happy Me Foundation in a bit. Let me just call on South Africans to participate then in this conversation. We are speaking to a pioneer in her field, 
one of the early pioneers in the truest sense in the field of medicine, Dr. Giotta Ban, a medical oncologist at Santon Oncology and an Icon Oncology Network oncologist. Let's have your calls, your thoughts to her, please, on 0891-104-207. Of course, it is October, and October is Cancer Awareness Month. So for those of you who might wish to engage enlightenment, gain enlightenment, a bigger pardon, or just wish to engage the subject of medicine, of cancer in particular, now is as good a time because we are in conversation with Dr. Tabane and her guest as well is somebody in that field. So until nine o'clock, essentially, we can have this conversation, not because we are interested in your health condition, but more than that, we want to get the advocacy aspect and the knowledge on the science and on South Africa, one of South Africa's quadruple burden of diseases, and that is chronic illnesses. And it would fall into that ambit, such as the cancers and how we can through change of lifestyle, I suppose, better the health outcomes of the country, more especially at this time when the public health care system, as well as private health care system, is under the kind of pressure that it is and shall be for the foreseeable time whilst we grapple with the challenges the nation and the world over has been posed by COVID-19. So please call 0891-104-207. Of course, the WhatsApp voice notes facilities are available, 0614-104-107. I take time to remind you, keep it short, one minute or less, and no background noise, so you're not in the bathroom doing other things and then suddenly pick up the idea that you should probably be sending us a voice note. Doc, let's talk about the fact that in 1999 you would have completed at Medunsa already something which many of your kind, African women in medicine in South Africa, at that time, we're talking about now in the first administration of the country, were few and far between. So engaging yourself in a system that didn't really contemplate your presence, much less your prowess in the discipline in which you'd be fielding. What is it, I suppose, that gave you the strength? Because you went for 12 years of uninterrupted study. You know, I must say, to be honest, the the 12 years doesn't feel like 12 years because when you set out and go to medical school, you don't say to yourself, I want to be a subspecialist. You think you just want to be a doctor. That's what you think you want to do. And so the six years goes past and you qualify and you, and then you think, you know what, maybe I want to specialize in something. And then you do that. And whilst you're doing it and you finish, you think, hmm, I could actually subspecialize. So it didn't feel long because at the beginning of the journey, I didn't have 12 years ahead of me. I had yeah. six years. I just wanted to be a doctor. And so it evolved as life you know, evolved. And, and, and uh, before I knew it, it was 12 years later. So honestly, it was... It did not feel long um, at all. I must say, you know, when I was in Medunz, I think one's quite protected because we are all sort of the same. And so there was no feeling of of not belonging. Mm. But it's only when one qualifies and goes into the broader medical community that Mm -hmm. you start to see and feel things that perhaps, you know, you, you are not what you thought you were, you know, that you need to push harder, speak up, um, make an effort to be heard and to be seen. And something that I must say Medunsa had not prepared me for because we were all the same mm. in Medunsa. So I didn't mm. need, feel the need to to be firm, to speak up, to to consciously excel, to to debunk myths that perhaps I was not as capable, you know, as 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 I knew I was. So it was really after qualifying that I I, I noticed that and and it's not a South African reality; it's a global reality. That I, a, a person of of my kind, needed to to push harder and to excel and to consciously stand tall, to to be seen and heard. 
I'm going to just fast track the conversation because I am pressed for time and I wouldn't want to steal any of it between yourself and your guest. I almost mentioned the guest's name. Can we just focus slightly, if we might just take a couple of steps forward, on, on cancer? Generally, the field of cancer, mm-hmm. South Africa's struggle with cancer, mm-hmm. really, and how, in many respects, the African population within our national demographics are fast becoming problem I suppose or a challenge to medical South Africa because of the high rates of incidents which is a function of growth I suppose of exposure of the resources being available generally speaking suddenly you pick up trends that are now not the exclusive domain but are a concern to the African community a lot of which are not going to be attended to for whatever reason because it is a myth or because culture doesn't determine that or doesn't require that. What are some of the worrying trends that you're picking up in relation to cancer about a previously population group that didn't have this kind of concern, at least from the textbooks that you were studying, or from when you were first early into the field? You know, I think the conversation about cancer in in our country is a dual conversation because there's a huge health disparity that I'll probably touch on later um, with, with my guest. And so there's two worlds in one country. And, um, you know, the world of, of private oncology and the world of uh, public health oncology are completely uh, divergent and different. And, um, of course, in the public space, um, one does find, in the public health care space, one does find the issue of late diagnosis. Um, and, and that's possibly because... Um, patients in that environment have got other challenges to to engage before they can think of screening tests. Mm. You know, we always talk about screening mammograms, but the reality is that the waiting time for a screening mammogram in the government hospital is in the matter of months. Um, and so those uh, conversations about screening and regular uh, tests and that aren't actually applicable to the vast majority of South Africans. And so what one now sees is issues of late diagnosis, and that, of course, translates into poorer outcomes, mm, um, you mm. know, for, for that patient population. Um, and fast track to a private environment where we see women with precancerous changes. So and with, with changes of a cancer that's yet to develop and, and looking at that contrast, you know, is, is, is quite disturbing. Fantastic. Let's hold the thought there, Doc. We are in conversation with Dr. Gio Taban, a medical oncologist. She is on the line and is our take of a guest this evening. 891 if you wish to participate. Quickest under the starting blocks, Colin in Cape Town, who I must say, in listening to the shows earlier on, I heard this name quite a lot. Good evening, Colin. We're not talking about the Free State, good, are we? Good evening, Sir Indeed. I always make sure that, uh, when it's an interesting subject. Thank you I'm very much. On the phone first. Thank you. And good evening to your guest. Uh, in the very, very beginning, your guest spoke about uh, uh, oncologists. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering what on earth is that? Fair point. And she never gave us the background, but listening further, further, further is to do with cancer, isn't it? Excellent. No, no. She will outline a little bit more of what it is that yeah, she does. Yeah, yeah. No, we appreciate yeah. that. Sorry. It's to do with cancer. Now, I would like to ask your, your doctor, your guest, um, what are the first signs in the human body? Because there's so many cancers. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, kidneys, liver, this and that. What are the signs that you must go to a practitioner, a GP, and have it checked out? And so and so. That's all I wanted to know. Excellent. Because um, I never knew what the oncologist was until I heard you talk about 
cancer, cancer, cancer. Very well. But there's so so many cancers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, can we've your, got you. Can, you. can your doctor describe uh, what are the symptoms of various, various cancers, like a lump, this, that, back pain, low back pain, swollen feet, or whatever it is? Thanks very much, Sergei. I'll listen on the radio. Eh? Thank you very much. Colin in Cape Town, anonymous in KZN, who's not so anonymous, according to one of our listeners on Wongi Gwala show earlier today. Anonymous nonetheless. Good evening. Thanks for calling. I see, I see you listening well. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good evening to you and to your guest. I just want to ask the doctor, you know, some of us have cancers. I'm a cancer survivor for about 25 years. I, I had cancer in 19, uh, nine, end of 1983, 93, I had a blood disorder. It was on stage 2 Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I am just inquiring, uh, you know, when you have cancer, a blood disorder cancer, uh, you have a lump on your, right hand, on your right hand side, on your chest, and you have either you have a lump, according to the booklet that I read then, and, or you have a lump on your neck. So, but it's very difficult to identify those lumps, and sometimes it travels down to your lungs, and then you end up dying. Two of my brothers passed on with lumps on the chest and didn't know what the lumps were, didn't investigate it, but they were feeling weak and didn't bother to check themselves. And both of them, had the cancer had gone down to their lungs and it passed on. Fantastic. Thank we appreciate you. that. The doc has made a note of that as well. And after this one more caller, Doc, William in the Free State, Doc will have an opportunity to respond. Of course, for those who want to join in the conversation, we're talking to a medical oncologist, Dr. Kiora Petze-Tabane. She is with us until 9 this evening. And then, of course, she will be my co-host between 9 and 9.30, something she's only finding out now. This is what we do every now and then. Free State, William, good evening. Uh, good evening, Sonia. I would like to ask the doctor there. Um, she has been there in the oncology the department there uh, for for such a long time. What are the dangers of being exposed to red, uh, you know, to X-rays? So maybe if you radiation, can, uh, radiation is yeah, and also um, uh, what did she after getting MBCHP? What what did? Did she do or, or MD? Or, or sure. Can she help us with that? Excellent. No, thank you very much, William. So here's what I propose, Doc. Just respond to first to Colin. Who are you? What are you? When you mention oncology, what should listeners or automatically take from that? And I think you can tie that response to the most previous caller in William in terms of just detailing the process of your qualifications and your experience and how you get to be the specialist that you are before we specifically deal with the conversation that Anonymous is drawing us to in terms of her specific condition. Please. So so I'm a medical oncologist. That means that I treat um, cancer with um, medication that includes uh, chemotherapy, uh, tablets, immunotherapy, which is medications that adjust one's immune system for the immune system to fight the cancer. So various kind of medications. Um, I'm not a radiation oncologist, and that is an oncologist who, after doing MBCHB, goes straight to do um, to, to, to learn how to treat um, cancer with radiation, which is like x-ray beams that are directed towards a, a, a cancer. The process for that is, of course, that you do your undergrad, uh, which is the MBCHB. What I did after the undergrad is that I did uh, the fellowship um, with the College of Physicians, um, and, you know, with the College of Medicine of South Africa, um, which then made me a specialist physician, um, basically specializing in internal medicine. 
And then thereafter, I then subspecialized with, um, again, with the College of Medicine of SA, which is a more national body, um, unlike an MMED, which is a Master of Medicine, which is more university-based. Um, there's a more national um, body examination. Um, and then that's how I became a medical um, oncologist, basically a, a specialist physician who has subspecialized in treating cancer with medications of various types. Fantastic. Um, and then coming back just to, to, to tie in Anonymous' question with Colin's question. You know, there isn't one sign for a cancer because the signs, for example, or symptoms for a cancer in the brain would be different from those of a lung cancer, from those of a colon cancer, from those of prostate cancer. But I must say the overarching symptom um, is often fatigue. Um, and that's also difficult because people are tired for, for different things. But if one's got persistent, unexplained fatigue and weight loss, um, which is not intentional weight loss, then I would often suggest that someone just gets checked. There are a whole lot of reasons for weight loss. There's a whole lot of reasons for fatigue. But often that combination lends itself to suspicion for a, a cancer a process um, happening. And for the main, for the rest, it really depends on where the cancer is. If it's a lymphoma, which is a cancer of the lymph glands, one could have a lump anywhere. It's not necessarily on, on the neck. It could be in the groin. It could be under the armpit, um, you know, night sweats, unexplained fevers, and so forth. So there isn't one sort of symptoms that we say, oh, this makes one thing of cancer. Um, it really depends on where the cancer is. But I would say unexplained fatigue, Unintentional weight loss are symptoms that really need to be assessed and uh, to, to conclusion. The response is from Dr. Tabane, who's a medical oncologist. And I'm just going to ask you, Doc, very briefly, please, just to move that cord running down your neck away from your from your buckle there because it's just giving us some feedback. Appreciate the responses. Um, I, I would hope William in the Free States question has been satisfied. If not, we will deal with it a little later on. But l- let's talk about men and cancer specifically the biggest killer among men in cancers at least my research tells me prostate cancer i'm asking this question probably because i have an interest in it as a man and the discomfort that comes with having yourself checked out because the intrusive way is not something i am particularly looking forward to but of course the older one gets the one one simply has to face a reality i'm asking this specific question because i would imagine many of my listeners might be interested in that question but for whatever reason as i am are uncomfortable in asking this question but i just have to sort of keep it tight and ask anyway doc prostate cancer men the, the the issue with prostate cancer is that yes men need to get checked out regularly um we don't have firm screening guidelines for for prostate cancer because um a lot of men in one uh, study where they did autopsies, were found to have died with prostate cancer and not from prostate cancer. So mm-hmm. they would have had a stroke and then at the time of the postmortem, they found that the prostate was cancerous. So um, it is a cancer that um, whose incidence increases with age. Um, you know, So the older the man gets, the higher the likelihood that they would get prostate cancer. Um, and so even when prostate cancer is found, the oncologist and the patient and the patient's urologist need to also decide on the timing of treatment um, because not all prostate cancer needs immediate attention. Um, you know, there is an option of a watch and wait approach, which is not common, but is in fact one of the options. Um, you know, but if of course there are symptoms and if the dynamic of the cancer seems to be 
rapidly progressive, then of mm-hmm. course, uh, treatment can be evaluated. The reality is that the checking is uncomfortable, but I would imagine that um, having a discomfort once a year, um, you know, is <laughs> sort of better <laughs> than having um, permanent discomfort of an incurable disease. Fair enough. Hard truth in spoken. Yeah, Lindani Johannesburg, last caller in this particular segment. You're on the line with Dr. Taban. Good evening, Lindani. <laughs> Yes, uh, thanks. Uh, it's good to talk to Dr. Tabane. So I'm Lindani Doc. I've been listening to you when you're talking. So the interesting element for me is the part where you're saying, which we are honest, and I fully agree as a person who's also working in health, uh, where you're saying the waiting period sometimes it is too long uh, when we're waiting for mammogram results. Uh, also the screening process before we actually test you, it actually takes very long. So in that context, what is your view in terms of NHI? Do you think NHI is going to be able to bridge a gap? So I would like to get your view in terms of that. And uh, well done. I think I like your profile. It's so inspiring. Thank you so much, Lindani. Appreciate the comment as well as the question. Doc, your response. Um, thank you for the question. I think the NHI question is, is, is an important question. Obviously, um, we all you know, hope that it will work out as it's meant to work out. The idea is a good one. Um, the idea that we need to have universal health coverage is a good one. And uh, we all have to put our hands on deck to see that it, it succeeds. Um, and I think that's really all what, what I can say at this point in time. But I think the concept and the idea of it is a good one. We need to move away from this huge health um, disparity that, that, that our country is in at the moment. I'm going to pick up on the fact that your surname is Etabane. And I don't know of Etabane who is afraid of asking any hard questions. It would follow that no Tabane is afraid of answering what might be termed as a hard question. If there's one thing... COVID has taught us in the public health care system in relation to the political setup, there is a lot of corruption. There's a profanity that st- starts with an F that might end in a K that I could have used just to impress the notion that there is a lot of corruption in the setup. I'm not interested in what NHI on paper suggests might happen or should or will in fact happen. I'm asking as somebody who has exposure and experience in the medical field, who knows exactly what it means to not have supplies when they are required, which is at oftentimes the difference between life and death. I'm asking this question in relation to that experience now, and which is more what the nation now knows a little bit more of in relation to public health care South Africa. Is there a political will to genuinely implement NHI so that it can genuinely make inroads that are consistent with the demands of our constitutional settlement to have better public health care outcomes for especially those who will never otherwise afford the medical intervention that their bodies seek? What is your experience so far in relation to what this dialogue is all about and how do you genuinely see it panning out, all things being equal on the facts that pertain today? I think whether there's political will um, or not, you and I can wait to find out. Um, I think I'm not going to guess on that um, right now. I'm not the... um, I don't think I'm, 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 I'm qualified to answer that question. However, what I will say to you is that similarly what COVID has shown us is that where there is determination, government is able to implement. 
the speed with which um, the government planned and implemented um, the COVID response was was impressive in my books. And I think for me, that gave me confidence to say, when we pull together against the common threat, government is able to deliver. And, and so we can hope that will be the same energy that government will apply to NHI and beyond. Sorry, here's my question. <laughs> government responding to put regulations in place and put the nation under lockdown is one thing. Quite another in terms of getting the resources distributed the way the resources are required where they are and the money that is inherent in that resource distribution stroke allocation and where it ultimately lands up. That is my question. In the context of food parcels, in the context of PPEs reaching where they are required, how many times have we seen in the both private and public spaces, have we seen medical professionals being on strike because they are exposed, because things have not happened the way that the paper suggests that it should happen? That is my question. Drawing from that in the time of a global crisis, how might we respond to an NHI which, whose implementation is totally in the control of the government without open close quote to the pressures of a global pandemic. I think so, just to remind you that I'm not a government representative, uh, but I'm hopeful as a South African, um, I'm hopeful that government can do what it needs to be, uh, what needs to be done for people, that government recognizes the need to close the inequality gap and like you and asking the same questions. And um, I am hopeful that, um, and all of us together, instead of criticizing and uh, the NHI can put our hands on deck to say, how can I, as a person who is not a government representative, um, join my hands, join hands with government, um, um, you know, to, to, to see that this NHI becomes a success. Instead of saying that if government implements NHI, that um, the doctors will leave and so forth. I think that question is beyond the government. How do we as South Africans intend to join hands with government to realize the goal of the NHI. Um, and, and then for the rest, we can leave it to government and, and hope that they do what they're meant to do. But I think the broader question is, what can we do as citizens to see that this um, succeeds mm-hmm. um, in, the, in, the, in the main? Yeah. I appreciate the response. Well, then, let's hope that South Africans, in your call, as the question stands, what can we do in the broader setup as South Africans can we do to make sure that there's a credible NHI implementation and equitable resource distribution for the betterment of the nation? Well, that's something that the callers will for sure participate in in the balance of this segment, 891 We're taking a short ad break before Dr. Tabane takes over with her guest. After the break, you are not going to be hearing me. After the break, you will be hearing Dr. Tabane together with her guest. Of course, keep your calls coming through. I'll put them through to her as well as her guest for engagement after this. She takes over.